Our text this morning is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. We are going to continue from where we left off last week in verse 15. Let me read this text to you. Luke, chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This morning, I want us to look at four reactions to the Savior's birth as they emerge from this text. Before we look at it more closely, I think you would all agree with me that Christmas is a very special time of year. Some might say it's a magical time of year. Certainly, it is an enchanting time that captivates our imaginations with all kinds of things, some things that are real and many things that aren't. In fact, I would say that some of my fondest memories as a child center around the indescribable charms of Christmas. It's a joyous time of year that brings out typically the best in most people. Stop and think about it. There's no other time of the year when we send greeting cards to one another. When we put beautiful lights on trees to adorn them and on our houses and telephone poles and whatnot. A time of year that is filled with all kinds of excitement. We have festive Christmas wreaths that grace everything from our doors to our car grills. It's a time of year where we exchange gifts and we have family reunions and we get together and we enjoy great meals and special music. And even our yards are decorated with all manner of things, everything from the ridiculous to the sublime. And occasionally we even see a nativity scene, which is Seemingly a relic of a bygone age. Indeed, our country is now well past a post-Christian era where in the name of tolerance and in the name of separation of church and state, we would even allow atheists to display their placards of ridicule next to a Christian's display of the incarnation and a nativity scene, an action that would be considered a hate crime were it to happen next to a Muslim shrine 
on a Muslim holiday. But I hope as Christians will not get caught up in all of that outrage. This is the natural response of natural men. God has said that these people are fools. He longs for them to repent and to believe in him and be transformed. But if they don't, they're going to respond this way. They are spiritually dead. They're spiritual cadavers. They have no capacity to understand divine truth. He tells us that they suppress the truth. In fact, in unrighteousness, they prefer darkness over light because their deeds are evil and so forth. And let's face it, we have a country that denies God as creator, a country that murders babies by the millions every year and promotes uh, homosexuality. And that's just for starters. But these things must come to pass. We read in Second Timothy three and verse one that in the last days, difficult, literally perilous times are going to come. We read that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In fact, because of increased wickedness, Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 11, that God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they will all be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. To be sure, we live now in an era where God, I believe, has lifted his restraining grace upon our country and has given men and women over to the consequences of their iniquity to allow them to pursue every imagination of evil that they have within them. We are told in Romans 1:28 that God gives them over to a depraved mind, which literally means a worthless mind, a useless mind. To do those things which are not proper. And he goes on to give a whole list of things that that would include, which is certainly a commentary on the world in which we live, especially here in the United States. But again, I'm not going to waste your time and mine raving and ranting about how quickly and inexorably our country is moving towards a day of judgment. In fact, our whole world moving towards a day of reckoning. But rather, this morning, I wish to transcend the, the darkness of all that we see around us in this modern era. And I want us to revisit the glories of Christmas, the birth of the Savior. I want you to join me this morning as I endeavor to open up the word to you and, and somehow recapture the essence of joy that emanated from that day and continues to give off light to this very day, even in a very dark world, even with unbelievers who don't really understand why all of the enchantment, but yet would readily acknowledge that there's something about it. There's something here. In fact, I would encourage you to consider the darkness of our day to be a God ordained contrast to the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Now, last week, you will recall that after 500 years with no sign of the presence of God, the Jewish people had not seen any of God's glory. They had not seen any angels, no marvelous, miraculous displays of his glory. 
And then suddenly this terrifying light comes along called the glory of the Lord, and it envelops a group of lowly shepherds that are caring for sacrificial sheep on a hillside in Bethlehem. A remarkable context. And out of this celestial brilliance of the blinding Shekinah, an angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord, this dazzling light that is the essence of his attributes is all contained in a child. Emmanuel, God with us. Now the true tabernacle of God has come to dwell with men. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And then in verse 12, we read last week a stunning statement, one that is utterly incongruent with what had just happened. The angel said, this will be a sign for you, speaking to the shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Absolutely astounding. You're telling us that the Messiah, the Lord of glory, has been born in a barn and he's wrapped in cloths and lying in a feed trough? What amazing condescension. What inconceivable humility. Then suddenly, in response to such astonishing meekness, We read how that millions and millions of angels suddenly appear and they're praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. We suddenly see the highest creatures giving the highest praise to the most high God. Glory to God in the highest. Literally peace on earth among men whom God has chosen by his uninfluenced grace. Now these sovereignly chosen recipients of grace, the elect of God, can have peace with Him. The war is over. There is a way to be reconciled to a holy God. And this was, of course, the purpose and the pinnacle of their praise. And now we come to these next five verses that I've just read to you, where we have a fascinating account of what happened next. And here we discover four reactions to the Savior's birth. I've tried to make them very simple so you will remember them. We are going to see witness, worship, wonder, and want. Witness, worship, wonder, and want. Witness of the shepherds, worship of the shepherds. We're also going to see the wonder, which is the bewildered reaction of the inhabitants of Bethlehem. And then we're going to see want, or in other words, a craving, a yearning, a longing, a hunger to understand all of these things as we see what happened with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And dear friends, I believe that in these four reactions, we have a sampling of how most people respond to Christmas even this day. And somewhere in the mix, be assured you will find yourself. First of all, I want you to notice the witness of the shepherds in verse 15. 
And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another. The Greek grammar would indicate that this was an ongoing discussion. And they're probably saying, we, we've got to go see the Messiah. What are we going to do with the sheep? Well, forget the sheep. You know, they'll take care of themselves. Let's go. So this is what they're talking about. They say, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This thing that they're speaking about here is a more expressive term in Greek than in English. The idea of seeing what has happened here, it's the idea of them hearing a word or a message. It's literally a reality. They understood, dear friends, that they had received a word from God about an actual event that had taken place. An event that was confirmed by this breathtaking, miraculous display of the angels and the glory of the Lord, and also an event that could be verified tangibly by going and actually seeing and even touching the child. So it'd be about a four to five mile hike from this particular area up the hill, up the kind of a mountainside up to the village of Bethlehem, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And you will remember now that there was a census and the town was packed. There, there, there was no place to even find, the, shall we say, a hotel. They didn't have those in those days, but there was no room in the inn, remember? So the place is packed with people. No room even for Joseph and his pregnant wife to find a stay and deliver a baby. So she had to give birth to the child in a barn inhabited by animals. That's how filled with people Bethlehem would have been. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of the shepherds for a moment. First of all, may I remind you that these would have been devout, believing Jews. These would have been godly men that were the chosen recipients of this incredible announcement. Men who would have repented of their sins and who would have depended solely on the mercy and the grace of God for their salvation. Men who, like Abraham, had by faith believed and God had counted it or reckoned it to them as righteousness. These were men that were looking for the Messiah. Now imagine if you had just seen all that they had seen. And heard all that they had heard. And yet you knew also that you're kind of an outcast of society. You're considered unclean by the rest of your Jewish brethren. You can't even give a testimony in court. But now after 500 years, the Shekinah glory of God has come and enveloped you. The angels have spoken to you. And you have been scared absolutely out of your wits. And were it not for the comforting words of the angel, you would still be on your face in fear. And I'm sure there were other things that, had, that were said that, and done that weren't recorded here in this account. And certainly the main emphasis here is not the miraculous uh, announcement of the angels, but the miraculous condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation. 
Now, if you were those shepherds, what would you do? What would you do? All of a sudden they've gone back and, and, and it's dark again and you see the stars and you're standing there looking at one another. What would you do? I'll tell you what you would do. The very thing that these godly men did. You would run like a scalded dog up to Bethlehem to see the Messiah. And that's precisely what they did. Now, you've been given some clues, remember? You've been told that the Messiah has come, but he's going to be a newborn baby. He's going to be wrapped in these cloths. In other words, the same way that they wrap every baby in those days. But now here's the real kicker. He's going to be lying in a in a animal trough in a manger. That's your clues. So it's the middle of the night. You start coming to the outskirts of Bethlehem. What do you do? You, you, you start knocking on doors. You, you, you start talking to people. You, you, you start telling them what you have seen and what you've heard. We're, we're looking for the Messiah. The Messiah has come. What? Yes, the Messiah has come. The, 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 these angels, they came and, and, and they, they told us that, that, that he has come, that, that, that he is Christ. He is the king. He, he is the savior. He has come to us. And, and, and he's somewhere around here. He's a newborn baby and he's in a feed trough. You have got to be kidding me. So they're knocking on doors It probably like a ripple effect. You see lights beginning to come on. The lanterns, the little lamps are being lit in all of the houses. And if it's anything like Pleasant View, the dogs are going to start barking and everything is going to start coming to life. A ripple effect. Curiosity is at a fever pitch. People are beginning to talk. And isn't it interesting, the very first witness of the gospel came from these poor, rejected outcasts who were the first to receive the announcement. And so they're the first evangelists here in the New Testament, the first to spread the news. And I, I can just imagine the look of excitement on their face. I, I, I'm sure that, that as they told the story, tears are coming down their cheeks and, and they're, they're grabbing a hold of people like the Jews will do. And they're talking right in their face. And they're telling them, I'm telling you, the Messiah has come. He is here somewhere in Bethlehem. The place would have been electric, dear friends. It would have been electric. And the people are thinking, if this is true, our days of Roman bondage are over. If this is true, the king is going to establish his kingdom. We, we, we've got to get up. I can just see an old man answering the knock and he hears the news and he turns to his wife and he says, I told you, Miriam, I told you it was going to happen in Bethlehem because that's what Micah had said. The prophet, he said, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Hallelujah. Oh, Miriam. The Lord, our God, is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. And he has come as he has promised. The consolation of Israel is here. Hurry up. Get dressed. We have got to find this child. Don't you know that people at this point, many of them were instantly rehearsing in their minds as they tried to get dressed to join the shepherds for the search. Don't you know that they were thinking of Jeremiah's words 
In Lamentations 3, His loving kindness indeed, it never ceases. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the persons who seek Him. Imagine the quivering voices of the shepherds. Is there a newborn infant in here? Do you have a cave or a stable or a barn? Anybody staying out there with your animals? What are you talking about? The Messiah has come. Don't you know that many people joined with them? They searched house to house, corral to corral, barn to barn. And in many, in many places, they would have like, like little caves that they would use to house their animals. Some join in, others scoff. But the shepherds bear witness of the glory of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're shouting the good news. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then finally, finally, they make their discovery. Oh, child of God, would that we be so bold in our witness. Though we, like those lowly shepherds, are considered in this culture to be the despised and the rejected. Remember, God has always chosen the weak, the foolish, and the despised of this world to shame the wise and confound the strong. Beloved, we're all called to do this, even as the shepherds. I know, I've heard it before. Well, yes, but it was easier for them because of what they experienced. They, They had the Shekinah and all of the angels. Oh, come on. Yes, that was a miraculous display. But, beloved, I would submit to you, we have been given far more. We have been given far more. Has not the Spirit of God revealed to you the same glorious news? Have we not seen the light of His glory? Have we not seen the incarnate Christ? We not only saw Him in the manger, we saw Him all through His life. We saw Him hang on the cross. We've seen His resurrection glory. Have we not experienced His power upon our hearts to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment? Has He not made us new creatures in Christ? Has He not transformed you? Do you not have a new heart and a new mind and a new song? A new longing in your soul? Has He not revealed to you who the Savior was? That He is our substitute for sin and He is the one who secured our pardon? What more do you need? Has He not freed you from the bondage of sin? And given us the hope of heaven? And you remain silent because you didn't get to see the light? Because you didn't get to see some angels? Dear friend, it is only... The selfish fear of self-protection that prevents us from spreading this news and glorifying and praising God all the more for what we have seen and heard that the shepherds had no idea about. We should all be shouting with the shepherds, come and worship the newborn king. 
Has heaven not entrusted us with the same message and the same commission? How is it that we can be so silent? How is it? And here's where I would encourage you to examine your own heart. How is it that so few times in our life we actually sit down with somebody that we know that does not know Christ and say, dear friend, I must talk with you about something of eternal importance. How can we be silent? I think of what David had to say about the mercies of God in Psalm 30 and verse 12. He was thinking about all of this and he said, this causes my soul to sing praise to thee. I cannot be silent, he says. Can you imagine the, the, the shepherds remaining silent? Boy, that was really something, wasn't it? I could sure use a cup of tea. I mean, no, not at all. What arrogance, what thanklessness to be given divine revelation of the mercies of God and then to be silent. When I think of this, I, I, I cannot justify such behavior in my life or in yours. In fact, in meditating upon this, I wrote this silent saints give cause to pause and wonder about their faith. Why would any twice born saint be mum in light of grace? How can we do this? Yeah, but I never know what to say. Dear friend, if you cannot articulate the fundamentals of the gospel of Christ, one or two things, one of two things is going on. Either you are mentally impaired and you probably need to be institutionalized. Or you're unsaved and you don't really know the truth. And perhaps there's a third one. You're too committed to your own self-protection. You fear man more than God. Yeah, but face it, people don't care about the gospel these days. And you talk to them and they just get mad. They don't want to hear it. My friend, has not the Lord promised to build his church? Do you really think that it's going to rise and fall on you? Do you not realize that he uses us as his instruments of righteousness? And do you not think that it would stand to reason that if God went to such miraculous lengths to reveal these truths to certain ones on that day, that he will continue to do so? Of course he will. Bottom line, every man and woman who has been saved by the gospel has likewise been commissioned to proclaim it to others who are in need of rescue. We have much to learn from these early evangelists as they run through the streets of Bethlehem on that dark night. And notice their actions after their visitation in verse 20. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Indeed, how could they do otherwise in light of such a glorious revelation? So witness is the first reaction to the birth of Christ. Secondly is worship. Notice in verses 16 and 17. It says, and they came in haste. That expression denotes eagerness and enthusiasm. They came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Now, visualize the scene with me. The shepherds. 
come into the place where Jesus lay. They see Mary and Joseph and the baby. No doubt they have to kind of move the animals around. And they come in along with who knows how many other people that, have, that, that were with them. They approach the Christ child with reverence and with awe, knowing who he is. I'm sure that there was not a dry eye amongst those shepherds. Tears ran down their cheeks as they saw their Savior, even though they could not fathom all of the implications of what this incarnation really meant. And whenever anyone who has truly embraced the glorious truth of the incarnation of Christ and His redemptive purposes, whatever anyone really grasps these things, they will do the same thing that the shepherds did. They will run to proclaim it and to talk about it. And so I'm sure here they begin to share the revelation of what God had told them through the angels a few miles away. Joseph and Mary are speechless. They hang on every word. Others are standing around. They're listening. They're watching. The Spirit now is doing His work. One of two things. He's either softening or He's hardening the hearts who hear the truth. But beloved, I want you to see something here that is so profound. I want you to see that witness and worship cannot be separated. Where there is one, there will always be the other. You see, proclamation is to worship what warmth is to the sun. In fact, as we look at the term worship in both the Hebrew and the Greek and the scriptures, we see that it means to, to bow down. It's used to, to describe one who shows reverence. Proskenuo in the Greek the heartfelt, heartfelt expression of one's secret devotion to God. It can be manifested in private, but also it's used to describe a public and even corporate expression of praise and adoration for God and His redemptive purposes. You see, this was the proclamation of the angels and now the shepherds. They worship, the angels worshiped now the shepherds are worshiping through their proclamation. This is what it means, by the way, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we know the content of the shepherd's proclamation by Mary's very pensive reflection in verse 19, where we read that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Dear friend, don't be deceived. Please hear this. There is no such thing as worship apart from the witnessing and the treasuring and the pondering of the Word of God. If that does not take place, worship has not taken place, whether it's private or whether it's public. Ah, but there is another reaction to the birth of Christ that is found in this story. A reaction that is quite different from actual worship. Number three, it's called wonder. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Wonder simply means in the original language to be amazed, to be astonished, to be filled with wonder. In fact, as I studied the term, I 
discovered that it is used primarily to denote amazement mixed with fear and curiosity. Think of signs and wonders. People would see things and say, whoa, did you see that? But my friends, this is altogether different from worship that comes as a product of repentant faith. Many today are like the citizens of Bethlehem. They hear of the Savior's birth and they learn of its saving implications. And they react with wonder. Wow, isn't that interesting? I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that really happened. Isn't that a fascinating story? (laughs) Whoa, as I think about it, if all of that is really true, as this Christian Bible and these Christian people say, I'm in serious trouble. But, But surely it can't be, because otherwise, how could so many billions of other people be wrong? But, oh, dear friend, happy day, happy day, when sight becomes faith. When suddenly the light of truth bursts upon a man's soul and he sees his sin for what it is. And he sees the glorious light of the gospel. And in it he sees the effulgence of the glory and the excellency of Christ, his Savior and his Lord. And because of that, by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God, he he falls on his face and he cries out, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Dear friends, that is radically different than wonder. Oh, my friends, when the truths of redemption capture the soul, curiosity will give way to conviction. Fear will become faith. And wonder will yield to worship. And I grieve for... So many people that I know, some who I'm sure are in this sanctuary, who are still wondering at the incarnation. Would that you humble yourself and place your faith in the Savior, who once laid in a manger, but is now at the right hand of the Father, and in unimaginable glory and splendor. Friends, it's then and only then will we be able to get lost in the wonders of redemption and be overwhelmed with the majesty and the glory of His grace. And then with heartfelt praise, we can sing Montgomery's great line, Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. But there is yet another reaction to the birth of Christ that we see here in this text. We've seen witness, worship, and wonder, but there is also that of want. Meaning a craving, a yearning, a longing to understand the revelation of God. Notice verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Treasured up is the idea of keeping something in one's mind. It means to hold, to carefully sort out and store away. And certainly she was doing this. She was hearing all of this and she was thinking all that the angel had told her husband, Joseph. 
all that Gabriel had told her. She was thinking how all of this fit with with the the long travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And now no room in the inn and all of this stuff going on. It says that she pondered them in her mind. It literally means to mull something over. To weigh something. You've all done that. To weigh something. To, to pensively reflect on all that has happened. It's the idea of thinking deeply about something. And certainly for Mary, she's thinking about not only what has happened, but what is going to happen. No doubt she was thinking to herself, here I am. I'm just a teenage girl and, and, and I am the mother of the Son of God. The Savior. This is the one that Isaiah has said that the government will rest on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the infant that I now hold in my, my hands. This is the one of whom Isaiah went on to say there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This, this is my child. When will all of this be? What will my child be like? Will I, will I go on to, to nurse him from my breast? Will he eat like a normal baby? Will, will we discipline him when he is naughty? What is going to happen here? How will we parent this child? When will he establish his kingdom and make his glorious presence known? Because right now he doesn't look all that glorious. What's going to happen to us? What will happen to him? Isaiah also said that he is going to bear our griefs and our sorrows. He, he, he also said, as I recall, that he is going to be smitten of God and afflicted. That he's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. That he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. That the iniquity of us all is going to be laid upon him. He has said that he is going to be oppressed and afflicted. That he's going to be a lamb that will be led to slaughter. What will all of this mean in days to come? It's fascinating when you read Mary's hymn of the incarnation, as we read earlier this morning. We will see that this teenage girl had a profound grasp of the rich truths of God's plan of redemption, past, present, and future. I would imagine that this conversation with the shepherds lasted several hours, perhaps till dawn. It would have already been late. Mary must have been exhausted. You ladies who have had a newborn child, you know what that feels like. And uh, babies aren't going to last more than a few hours without wanting something to eat. So no doubt she had to tend to the child. And the shepherds. And others that were around with them probably said, 
we need to leave you alone now, but we're, we'll be back. We're going to be praying to see what God does here. We won't lose touch with you, but we're going to leave you now. And they reverently departed. But isn't it interesting how the Spirit of God reminds us of yet another reaction here to the Savior's birth? One that frankly will inevitably flow from the same well of, of witness and of worship. And that is the want or the yearning to plumb the depths of divine revelation. Dear friends, this will always be one of the foremost fruits of repentant faith. This will be one of the surest signs that validates the genuineness of one's faith. There's all kinds of people who profess to be Christ or to be profess to be Christians. You see that all over the place. But yet we know from Scripture that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom. In fact, there's every indication, according to Matthew 7 and Jesus' words there, that there will be far more who think they are saved who will never enter the kingdom than those who truly are and will enter. But certainly, one of the greatest evidences of genuine saving faith, hear this, is a hunger for the Word of God. This is the essence of what we see here with Mary's treasuring and pondering. You see, Mary had a yearning to understand all that God was up to in her life. And, 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 and in the baby's life, in the Christ child's life, and in her marriage, and in her family, and for her people. This desire always engages three parts of our being as humans it engages the mind whereby, as for Mary, she would reflect upon her own knowledge of the scriptures and she would think of all that God has done for her and promised to do in the future and what he was doing now. I'm sure that with her mind, she thought through the holiness of God's character. She tried to comprehend his infinite perfections, his unimaginable glory. And majesty that he is now left, as well as his unsearchable judgments. It also includes emotions. As she experienced the full range of emotions, as she contemplated the surpassing splendor of God's mercy and love and grace on her life and all that was going on now. It also involves the will our volition, our willingness to love and to serve come what may. This is all that was going on with her treasuring and her pondering. And friends, I would ask you, does this describe you? Is this an exercise that is characteristic of your life? Privately and publicly. I'm always saddened to see believers who seemingly have no appetite to plumb the depths of Scripture. Even some of you. Despite the numerous opportunities that the Lord gives you, radio, Internet, even here at this church. Some of you 
if you examine your heart, would have to admit that you've not spent a single hour treasuring and pondering the glorious truths of the gospel and its implications in your life. You've not spent a single hour in that type of in-depth study and meditation in the last month. And yet, my, how we worship our television screens. What an idol. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Many Christians never grow. They've known Christ for years and they're still spiritual toddlers. And like toddlers, they are ruled by their lusts, not by the mind of Christ. And generally, like a toddler, they are uneducated in matters of life and godliness. And like toddlers, they really have no desire to sit down and really think through anything that's any deeper than some little toy or some little pleasure-giving cartoon. Another pastor friend and I recently were together and we were sorrowfully describing the average Christian, some lamentably that are even in our own churches. We came up with a little list and I thought I would share it with you. Many Christians are unhappy, unhelpful, unsubmissive, unaccountable, unteachable, undiscerning, undisciplined, and perhaps unsaved. We see the profound needs of believers in our own flocks. A need to learn and apply the scriptures to their lives. Because in many cases their marriages are not good. Their children are undisciplined. Frankly, I have horses who are better disciplined than some of your children. And I don't say that to be funny. I say that to your shame. Their finances are in absolute disarray. They have no understanding of what God would have them do. And I feel a great conviction to spend time teaching you in days to come. Many are so weak doctrinally they couldn't beat their way out of a wet paper sack. People that absolutely have no discernment. And yet they've been Christians for years. People who are crippled by life-dominating sins. Beloved, Peter reminds us that, 2 Peter 1.3, that His divine power has granted to us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Knowledge, by the way, is the key word there. It's an intimate knowledge. Not some superficial surface knowledge. Beloved, you will never be able to tap into the power of God apart from an intimate knowledge of God and His will for you and all that He has commanded regarding every area of your life. It is not going to happen unless you get serious about treasuring and pondering and plumbing the depths of the Word of God. And that's not going to happen just by coming to Sunday school. And just by coming here to hear me preach. 
or going to other Bible studies, even though those things are absolutely foundational and you should not miss them. Beloved, you must learn to discipline yourself for the sake of godliness, as Paul told Timothy. Beloved, spiritual growth will never, ever happen in your life unless there is a craving for and a delight in the Word of God. And as Peter says, this craving is, is one that must rival the craving of a newborn infant for mother's breast. In other words, it's got to be a matter of life and death. Mary understood this. Again, just read her hymn of praise, the Magnificat, in Luke 1. Here, a teenager with such a profound grasp of Scripture and theology. And yet, isn't it interesting that the Spirit of God tells us here in Luke's Gospel, verse 19, that she still treasures up all of these things and ponders them in her heart. Beloved, Mary had a hungry heart. She had a want, a passionate desire to plumb the depths of divine truth. And beloved, if that is not a part of you, you need to examine your heart because you may not be in the faith. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Many people don't want to hear his voice, much less follow him. She was like the Apostle Paul who described, remember in Philippians 3, how he would gladly give up everything in his life for something that was far, far, exceedingly far greater than all else. And that was Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. Spurgeon speaks with such a sacred eloquence regarding this want for the deep things of God. And I give this to you, quote, beloved, remember what you've heard of Christ and what he has done for you. Make your heart the golden cup to hold the rich remembrances of past loving kindness. Make it a pot of manna to preserve the heavenly bread on which saints have fed in days gone by. Let your memory treasure up everything about Christ which you have either heard or felt or known. And then let your fond affections hold him fast forevermore. Love him. Pour out that alabaster box of your heart and let all the precious ointment of your affections come streaming on his face, on his feet. If you cannot do it with joy, do it sorrowfully. Wash his feet with tears, wipe them with the hairs of your head, but do love him. Love the blessed son of God, your ever tender friend. Spurgeon went on to say, let your intellect be exercised concerning the Lord Jesus. Turn over and over by meditation what you read. Do not be loitermen. Do not stop at the surface. Dive into the depths. Be not as the swallow which touches the brook with her wing, but as the fish which penetrates the lowest wave. Drink deep draughts of love. Do not sip and away, but dwell at the well as Isaac did at the well of Laharai. Abide with your Lord. Let him not be to you as a wayfaring man that tarries for a night, but constrain him saying, abide with us for the day is far spent. Hold him and do not let him go. End quote. 
May I challenge you, dear friends, to set aside some time to spend alone with God during this Christmas season. An uninterrupted time where you can do as Mary did and treasure up these things and ponder them in your heart. And may I remind you in so doing to be highly suspect of your own spirituality. Please remember that we are hopelessly biased in our own favor. We seldom can see the log in our own eye because we're squinting so hard to see the speck in somebody else's. But as you go before the Lord, just remember that the Grand Canyon could not hold the volumes of your ignorance and my ignorance, nor could it hold the list of our sins. So get alone with God and ask the Spirit of God to bring conviction to your heart, to expose your blind spots and to teach you those areas where you are failing and where you are dishonoring Him. And may I encourage you not to leave that sacred place until you can say, as Mary said in her hymn of praise in Luke 2, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Beloved, don't leave that closet of prayer and meditation until your heart can overflow with the same doxology as Paul said in Romans 11 when he said, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And mark my word, dear Christian, if you have truly treasured and pondered the truths of redemption, there will be no need for me or anyone else, anyone else to prod you to witness and to worship. It will be as natural to you as breathing. And for those of you who have not trusted Christ as Savior, and I hope you know who you are, nor do you serve Him as Lord, may I challenge you to... Move beyond the wonder and curious fear and come to a point of confident faith and worship. May this Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ be the season you celebrate your new birth in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. And certainly the lash falls on all of our backs as we immerse ourselves in your word and your spirit speaks to us. But we thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. And we thank you for all of the implications of the incarnation of Christ. Lord, cause these truths to resonate in our heart. I pray, Lord, that you will bring conviction where necessary, comfort where needed, and certainly salvation to those who would cry out for that which you would give them so rich and so free. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. 
For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.